Church, let me invite you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning, and we're going to be, as we continue our study in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. You'll find that on page 987 in the Pew Bible. And may I add, just by a a personal note, while while you are praying for our team in Guatemala, who I think are leaving this weekend, uh, pray for those they leave behind. Um, And so I would appreciate that, as uh, I've been tasked to care for uh, eight children, so... um, and God is, uh, nothing is impossible for God, we should say, so we trust Him. Um, and I, I'm excited for them to go, and I'm excited for our new engagement in Guatemala. And I trust that God is going to do a mighty work through our church, not just in a week from now, but my prayer and hope is for many years to come, as God continues to mobilize us, not only to impact our community, but to impact the nations, as it should be. And so um, let us pray for them even as we prayerfully consider God's word now before us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 13. Hear now the word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Our Father, we are thankful this morning for your word that we can consider it. It is a great and glorious truth. We, we, we walk on hallowed ground today as we consider the great hope that you have placed in our heart through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Father, that you would work in such a mighty way in us through your Spirit and the proclaimed Word that, that those who come here with grief in their heart might have the great privilege of gazing upon the Lord Jesus and His work and that their hearts may be filled with hope, even in the midst of sorrow. And for those of us who will one day walk into sorrow, for it's coming for us all, that these words would be hidden deep within our soul, that we might be reminded in that day of what Christ has done for us in Christ alone. And so even as we come to your word, the The words of the song echoes in my heart and perhaps others. All glory be to Christ. That's why we consider your word. That we might know your glory and rightly give it to you. For we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Guys, is it my my, uh, ear mic? Should I go to the pulpit mic? Or should we just give it a shot? All right, very good. Well, I, I would like to begin this morning uh, with one of my favorite heroes in the faith, the, uh, actually the first American foreign missionary who followed the first 
British uh, missionary, who of course was William Carey, who went to India, and uh, Adoniram Judson, the uh, American, who was so inspired by William Carey's missions in India, uh, he and his wife set sail for India there in the early 19th centuries, the early 1800s. They never made it to India, as you might know. Uh, Instead, uh, they weren't allowed into the country, and so he and his wife um, ended up being in Burma, right next door. Again, his name is Adoniram Judson. He took his beloved wife, Anne, with him. And there, uh, once they arrived in Burma, as uh, newlyweds tend to do, uh, they, they had a child and a, a little girl whom they named Maria. Now, Maria was a sweet and precious thing, as, as all children are, of course, but she was a very frail and weak child. And she never really took to living in the jungle climate she would go, as, even as, a, as an infant, from one tropical fever to the next. And so there'd be many evenings that Anne and Adoniram would, would gather around their, their sweet little Maria, and they would lay on hands and pray for this child and ask that God would preserve her through yet another illness, and yet all at the same time committing her into God's loving hands and His perfect will. Well, there came a point uh, in Adoniram's life that he was called away uh, for an extended period on missionary business. He was afraid to go because he was afraid by the time he would return, he would uh, return and little Maria would have passed away. He went nevertheless trusting in the Lord and yet on December 7th in 1827, a ship captain came and brought him an envelope with a black seal. The captain handed Adoniram the envelope exchanging these words with him. I am sorry about the death of your little girl. He had heard, of course, of her illness, as many um, had. He knew many were praying for her. And so he, like many, were heartbroken for Adoniram. Of course, he quickly opened the letter and read these words. My dear sir, to one who has suffered so much with such exemplary fortitude, there needs be but little preface to tell a tale of distress. To sum up the unhappy tidings in a few words, Mrs. Judson is no more. See, it wasn't Maria who had died, but it was his beloved wife, Anne, suddenly overcome by a tropical fever. It took Adoniram two months to return back home, to get back to his little Maria. He writes in his autobiography of that homecoming, saying, I was unable to get any accounts of the child at Rangoon, and it was only on my arriving here that I learned she was still alive. Mr. Wade met me at the landing place, and as I passed on to the house, one and another of the native Christians came out, and when they saw me, they began to weep. At length, we reached the house, and I almost expected to see my love coming out to meet me, as usual. But no. I saw only in the arms of Mrs. Wade a poor little puny child who could not recognize her weeping father, and from whose infant mind had long been erased all recollections of the mother who loved her so much. He continues saying, Mrs. Wade turned from me in alarm, and I obliged to seek comfort elsewhere, found my way to the grave. But whoever obtained comfort there? That's an interesting question, I think. Whoever obtains comfort at the grave. I think even hearing a story like this 
from a man we don't know who lived 200 years ago. Um, it's still troubling in our hearts. Right? We still feel weight considering that he would deal with such tragedy. And we feel that weight because we all understand that death is an enemy. Right? When we see death, when we come near death, when we hear about death, there's an ache in us. There's a sadness in us. Our society today tells us that death is natural. That it's just part of, a li- part of life, and we need to come to grips with this. But I think if we just take a moment and analyze our heart, whether we follow Christ or not, I think every heart would testify that such statements are not true. That we hate death. Right? We, 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 we buckle up, don't we? We have airbags in our car. We eat broccoli. Right? Why? Right? We don't want to die. Right? There's something in you and in me that cries out, this is not the way things are supposed to be. I would suggest to you the Bible agrees with your heart. That, that death is a painful intrusion, not originally meant to be here. A pain that the Thessalonian believers were grappling with. In fact, they're not just grappling with death. They're grappling with questions about what has happened to those who have died. It is clear as we've studied this letter that Paul has taught them about the triumphant return of the Lord. In fact, every chapter, as I've already said, in the book of 1 Thessalonians uh, mentions, if not outright teaches, a great deal about Christ's return. And that it will be the theme of his second letter to this little church. And, And perhaps... Because Paul taught them about Christ's return when he was there for just a month or so, that they had the impression that they'd all be living when Christ comes on that great day. But a few months later, perhaps, someone dies in the church. And then a little while later, another one dies, and then perhaps another. And the question rises, well, Christ has not come yet. What of our deceased ones? Will they miss out on this glorious day? Would would they not receive the resurrected body that Christ will bring? Are only those who are living on the great day of his advent going to enjoy the triumph of his return? Will we ever see them again? They might have asked. And it's here at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Paul seeks to clarify, provide some clarity to their confused minds and some comfort into their troubled hearts. He actually does so in two different ways. One, he points back to the sacrifice of Jesus. And then he points forward to the future triumphant return of Jesus. We, God willing, will take actually two weeks to consider those each in turn. Today, we'll look back to the sacrifice of Jesus. As one commentator put it, Paul teaches them to look back and be grateful for what Jesus has done and to look ahead and be hopeful for what Jesus is going to do. These, my friends, I would suggest are truths that we need. Truths that they need to clearly, truths that you need, truths that I need, answering the question, helping us answer at least, how is it that we will face death? How are we going to face death? I can say to you this morning with utmost confidence that there is death in your future. I I know that for sure. And, And there might be quite a bit of death in your future. How will you face such a foe? We need truth. Is that why not Paul says there in verse 13? But we do not want you to be uninformed. Uninformed. You need truth, he says. You see, the Christian living is not seeking after a religious experience, you know, running after some type of euphoria and and experience and all the rest. 
And Christian living is certainly not, as other religions would suggest, emptying your mind, focusing on nothing. The Christian life is lived by receiving and believing the truth of God. That God has given to us his word, that we might understand it and apply it to our lives, and it might guide us through this life. Even when we come to the end of that life, it might provide guidance for us. For the scripture tells us, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Right? It is a guide unto my path. And so we come, even now, as we do regularly, do we not, and seek God's guidance so that when opportunities abound and pressures buffet and questions uh, besiege us and temptations assail us and death overwhelms us, we would know the way of the Lord, the truth of the Lord. We would not be uninformed. And so the question is, what is his way when it comes to death? How do we handle it? Well, he gives us, I think, here two words to focus on in verse 13. Consider them with me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not One, grieve, as others do who have no, number two, hope. Grief and hope, right? Notice he he says, uh, not not since you, because you hope. He doesn't say because you hope you don't grieve. Nor does he say, since you grieve, you don't hope. He puts them together. He says you grieve with hope. And so let's consider the first of those two. Grieve, that grief. This almost seems to be a command for us, that we should at times grieve, right? So we might ask the question, should Christians ever grieve? And we should say without hesitation, yes, yes, we should. Sometimes you'll, you'll meet a Christian, and well-meaning as they might be, they say in their foolishness, in the midst of tragedy and trial, now, now, don't worry, he's with the Lord, right? She's with the Lord. You don't need to be at all worked up. You don't need to be upset. We know what's happened to them, and so you should not be filled with the sadness that you have right now. And that's true. We do know they're with the Lord if they're in Christ, but that does not negate our grief. Did Job, when his kids died, did he not tear his clothes, shave his beard, and sit in ashes for a week? And the Bible comments saying, and in this, Job did not sin. Does not Paul, when visited by the, the pastor of the Philippian church, a man named Epaphroditus, who came to Paul bearing gifts to him while Paul was in prison, and Epaphroditus got ill, and ill almost to the point of death, and yet God saved him. Paul sends Epaphroditus back to his church with these words that God saved me from sorrow upon sorrow. Paul says, I'm so glad that God saved me from sorrow in saving Epaphroditus. And you might say, wait a second, Paul. Doesn't Paul know about heaven? Doesn't Paul know that to die is gain? Doesn't Paul know that to depart and be with Christ is far better? Yes, he does. He wrote all those words. And yet he knows there's still a loss. And therefore there's still grief. For even, we are told, are we not, that our Lord was a man of sorrow. And acquainted with what? Grief. See, this is, I want you to understand this is in great contrast to what our world says. In particular when it comes to death. We are constantly counseled by the world and the kind of the evolutionary mindset that, that we, we well, there's nothing bad about death, they tell us. It's just part of life. Death is natural, they say. There's nothing to be afraid of. You just go to sleep. You kind of drift off into unconsciousness. We're told it is a, Part of the circle of life, are we not? 
Have you, you, you've seen, of course, I trust, uh, Lion King, right? And I, I guess it was recently released or something, uh, re-released. And, and you have the young lion who, uh, of course, the lions eat the antelopes. And, and, and uh, so the young lion's told, yeah, we eat the antelopes, but the antelopes don't eat us. And the young lion's, I haven't seen the movie, I'm afraid, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, from what I understand, the young lion says, um, well, that doesn't seem fair. Right? Why do we get to eat the antelopes and, and they don't eat us? And well, Daddy Lion says, well, here, here it is. Uh, we die and then we become fertilizer right, in the ground. And then the fertilizer grows the grass and then the antelopes come and they, what? they eat the grass. So we eat the antelopes and the antelopes eat us. Isn't that wonderful? Right? Let's sing a song about it. Right? Okay? This is great. We all eat each other. You know? And I'm afraid you said, well, that, of course, that's Disney, and that's uh, the nonsense. You know, that's what happens when you have Mickey Mouse developing your theology, and, and you got these problems. But um, take, for instance, uh, the, the uh, in, incredibly influential uh, British author, Diana Athill, who at age 98 wrote an article about her forthcoming death. She died, by the way, this year at age 101 in January. And she she would write in her article just a few years ago that death is a natural process. It's the next stage in your place, in your life cycle of the world, she says. And she goes on and says, when you die, your body nurses the earth so vegetation grows and other beings eat and are part of the life cycle. And then she concludes that she has coming to see the naturalness of death took away all my fear, she says, of death. And, And my question, I mean, I can't look into this woman's mind, but does that really work? Because I've been to many funerals, as you have, I trust, and, 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 I, and the, the, the dozens and dozens of funerals that I have been at, I have never come to a single one where we all got around and rejoiced that this person will soon become a de- decomposing body and fertilize the earth. Isn't that wonderful? Right? So I don't doubt that some people believe it, I, but I do doubt that it actually brings them any real stable joy. We certainly don't sing about it. And the reason is, is we are not built for that destiny. I like the story that Peter Kreft tells of his neighbor. A neighbor's nephew died suddenly. And she had a seven-year-old son. And her seven-year-old son wanted to know what happened to his cousin. And so his neighbor explained, your cousin has gone back to the earth from which we all came. And she just went on to explain that death is a natural part of the cycle of life. And then she eventually encouraged her seven-year-old son. Uh, She said to him, when you see the earth put forth new flowers in the spring, know that your cousin's life is fertilizing the earth and helping those flowers. At this, the little boy screams and runs out of the room shouting, I don't want him to be fertilizer. And Kreft says she was totally surprised. Because she, as an adult, had suppressed the human intuition that death was an enemy. She denied what is in her heart, but her seven-year-old son had not learned to do so yet. The seven-year-old knew what we all know if we would look deep down, that death is a monster, it is an enemy, it is an intrusion in this world. Something is wrong with this world. And telling us we've become grass is not very helpful. In fact, I would suggest, if you allow me, that it is stupid. Listen, this is the best wisdom that our materialistic, evolutionary, modern mindset has. That's all it could do with death. Chin up, you become fertilizer. We, We realize, of course, we all do, we are more than grass. 
Jesus does not come to Mary and Martha while they're grieving over their dead brother and say, Lazarus' body will help the flowers grow. Let's sing a song. What does he do? He weeps. He grieves. Why? You say, why does Jesus grieve? Why do we grieve? Well, my friends, I think the answer is obvious. What is the most important thing to you? What is most valuable in your life? What gives you meaning and purpose in your life? Is it not the people you are sitting next to with your arms around? Is it not the, the, your loved ones? Is it not the relationships what you have? This is what we treasure. And what does death do? It comes and snatches from us that which is most important in our lives, that which helps us most live the life that we have and, and guides us in the life. It takes them from us, and then for good measure, one day it will take you from the ones who love you. It attacks the very center of what life is about, and it attacks the very center of our joy, and it destroys what we hold most dear. And so Paul rightly says, grieve, grieve. The world has gone wrong. We are not made to shrivel up and weaken and suffer and then die. I don't believe it for a moment. We are made to grow stronger and more beautiful and wiser and endure. We are not made to lose. We are made to keep those we love, and so we grieve. But we don't just grieve. Grief is not all the Christian feels when faced with death. We grieve, but we grieve differently. We grieve with hope. And so if there's a command to grieve, there's a comfort here to hope, as you see secondly. For what does he say there in verse 13? We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul says, listen, you need to rub some hope into your grief. You need a hopeful grief. And, and you say, okay, what is our hope? What is it that we hope in? Well, he tells us, I think, here in this passage that we have two hopes. Number one, that those who have died in Christ, they live. And number two, they shall return. Or you might consider it this way. There is a present hope. They're alive. And there is a future hope that we will see them again. And so consider first the, 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 the first hope he presents to us. They live. After all, how does he refer to the Christian dead? You see that there? In verse 14, about those who are asleep, he says. He says it as well in verse 13. And then for good measure, you'll read it at the end of verse, five, uh, verse 15. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Three times there in three verses. He says, listen, the dead are those who are asleep. Don't you love to fall asleep? Isn't that wonderful? Sleeping, refreshing. And the Bible, for the believer, is constantly picturing death as sleep. We see this in the Old Testament. The saints of God, we're told, sleep with their relatives, with their family. We're told they rest from their labors. In the New Testament, for instance, when Stephen is being stoned there in the book of Acts, we're told when he dies, the Bible says he fell asleep. When Lazarus was dead and buried, Scripture says he sleeps. Right? This is why we call the place where we bury our dead cemeteries. It was just simply Latin for sleeping place. What does that mean? What does it mean that we sleep? What, what, what is he driving home? Is he saying that those who have died in Christ are in a state of unconsciousness, as some have suggested, without what I would consider a heretical truth, or a doctrine, I should say, of soul sleep? No, he's not talking about our souls. He's talking about our bodies. 
It's not a reference. When he says we're asleep, it's not a reference to our souls or our spirit. It's a reference to the body. The body is at rest. It lies as if it were on a bed while the spirit rejoices in the conscious presence of God in heaven. Theologians call this the intermediate state. The intermediate state. They do so because this is the state of the saints, the believers, between death and the bodily resurrection. Before Christ comes and recreates the world. So we'll read, for instance, in Luke 16, when Jesus teaches us of the death of a beggar who immediately experiences the bliss in God's presence. We read in Revelation chapter 6, the spirits who have been martyred uh, as Christians gathering there before the throne of God, communing with him. In fact, did not Jesus, we read this because Jesus promised, did he not, to the thief on the cross, what did he say? Today you will be with me in paradise. We're going someplace today. Your body will stay here, but we're going someplace today. Right? Does the Bible not declare that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Did Paul not proclaim to us that I desire and depart to be with Christ, for that is far better? So how can death be far better? Well, it is only far better if it brings us into a closer, fuller, more richer experience of the one to whom we ultimately love, namely Jesus Christ. And so the great Puritan John Owen would say, when at death the soul departs from the body and it is immediately freed from all weaknesses, disability, darkness, doubts, fears, and being freed, their soul flourishes. Dwight L. Moody would, would hit at the same point with less theological language when he said, as he was dying to his friends, soon you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than ever. In fact, I think this, this metaphor of sleep is interesting. Sleep, after all, is temporary, isn't it? And just as sleep is not permanent, so neither is death. The Bible tells us the sleepers will awake, the dead will rise. Even way back in the book of Daniel, we're told the multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. I wonder if this is what they were trying to communicate at Winston Churchill's funeral service. Churchill, who in his early years was a convinced agnostic, we are told by his grandson that he came to faith in Christ when confronted by the evils of the world war. There is one story when Churchill and uh, some other leaders were around and they were discussing the great leaders of history. And finally, feared Marshal Montgomery asked him with a smile, and what do you think of Jesus Christ? Churchill's response was, Jesus Christ was unsurpassed in his capacity to save sinners. Well, on his death, it was a sad day for Great Britain, no doubt, as many wept at St. Paul's Cathedral as the bugler sounded the slow, mournful notes of taps, indicating that the night had come on the great Winston Churchill. But as that last note of taps drifted away, the bugler began to play again. This time he played reveille, the notes with which the soldiers are called to a new day. Right, Christians 
can likewise know that the sleep of the dead will end, right? When the trumpet sounds and our Lord returns. And it's in this that we hope. We hope that those who have died in Christ continue. They are alive. And in fact, we not only hope that they live, but we hope that they return. Our, our second hope that Paul tells us for, does he not say in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He'll bring them with him, we're told. That's how you speak of the living, isn't it? Hey, I'm going to bring him with me to dinner. He's coming with me. Well, we're told Jesus will bring them with him because they are alive and they are coming with Christ when he returns. And what a return that will be for when Christ comes. It will not be some solitary event, some uh, lonely individual there coming down from heaven. He will be escorted by the multitudes and the multitudes of all the generations of those who sleep on Jesus. And then on that ground, great day, if you and I are still living, we shall be reunited with them. For we'll consider at length next week this great verse in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. With them. And so even when we face death, it's more like, to the Christian, it's more like saying goodbye to one who is leaving on a journey perhaps. There's grief because you're going to miss them. But there's hope you're going to see them again. And so we hope. We mix this hope into our grief. Of course, the question that might arise with this, as some maybe even here with skepticism in their heart, say, how do we know? How can you know that they live? How can you know that you'll see them again? In fact, many people accuse Christians as just being weak people who are unable to cope with tragedy. And so we come up with this whole elaborate system of of doctrine saying that we're going to live forever. This is what they shouted in 2012. I don't know if you were there at the Reason Rally there at the Washington Mall when thousands gathered there to celebrate their lack of belief in God. They actually had 38 speakers that day, right? And so, I mean, I like listening to speeches, but 38, that's incredible. As one after another um, mocked those who believed in God. Silly people, weak people. And they argue, of course, when you die, well, you just drift off into unconsciousness. That's what happens. You just die. It's the end. My question for them, they didn't allow me to come or at least speak, but my question to them was, well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know when you die, that's it? How can you prove it? I would, as they mock those who have faith, I would suggest to them that they have as much faith as we do. They have a system of faith. They don't know. Others will argue for a middle ground, won't they? They say, well, we just can't know what happens after death. Or it might be the end. It might not. We might just uh, be, you know, drift off to unconsciousness. That's it for us. Or might, we might live on. How do we know? We don't know. This was perhaps Shakespeare's position. At least it was that of his great character Hamlet as he was there at the cemetery. Remember that? With a um, uh, skull in his hand and said the dread of something after death. Remember that speech? The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will, he says, and makes us rather keep the ills we have rather than the ills we know not of. I don't know what's coming. There's ills coming, perhaps. I'd rather have these ills than those ills. It's an undiscovered country. No traveler returns, he says. We don't know what's there. To which the Christian says... No, no. We do know. We do know what happens. Of course, the world will say, how can you be certain? Which I think is an incredibly good question. How can we be certain? 
Well, we have an answer for us, and it's here in verse 14, is it not, as we consider lastly, the certainty we have, that is our belief. For Paul here says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He doesn't say, notice, we feel. He doesn't say we cross our fingers. He doesn't say we speculate. He doesn't say, you know, we're just wishing for the best. Right? Some people do that. Uh, some people, that's how they counsel people in tragedy. They come and say everything is going to be okay. That's the counsel sometimes people give you. Or you ever get that in the midst of trial? Don't worry, it's all going to work out. And you kind of want to shake them and say, well, how do you know? How do you know it's going to work out? When is it going to work out? When is it going to be okay? What if it's not okay? How do you know? Paul doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope, for everything will be okay. It's not the counsel he gives. He says, no, every, I want you to hope with grief, for we believe. We believe, he says. And what is it that we believe? Well, we believe there are two things, don't we? That number one, that Jesus died. And number two, he says there in verse 14, that Jesus rose again. So please understand that Paul's view of the world, indeed all Christians' view of the world, is directly tied to the life, death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in that life that we have our confidence, that we have our certainty, this is not what we're discussing today, simply a theological notion or a doctrinal principle or a speculative worldview. It's certainly not some elaborate religious myth. Christianity, and by the way, Christianity alone amongst all the world's religion, is based upon historical events. Namely, chiefly, it is centered on a man whom the world has called Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that man lived, we believe that man died. And we believe that man rose again three days later from the grave. And because he did, he will bring with them those who have fallen asleep when he returns. The father didn't abandon Jesus to the grave. And neither will he abandon anyone who has given themselves to Christ. He will not abandon you, Christian, to the grave. Nor will he abandon me to the grave as he has not abandoned anyone to the grave who has trusted in him. Say, how is he able to do this? Well, he can because he forgives us. We have, if you will, a forgiven past. That's what we believe. What do we believe? Our past is forgiven. For he says there in verse 14, we believe that Jesus died. Well, you might say, well, so, well, so what? Big deal. Everyone dies. We all know that. What, the question is, why did he die? Why did he die? Well, I'll tell you, based upon the authority of the word of God, he died for us. He died in our place. Just turn over to one chapter, chapter 5, verse 10, a passage I can't wait to preach to you in the coming weeks. It says here of Jesus, here it is, four words, who died for us. For us. He died instead of us. He died in our place. He endured the penalty of our sin that would have condemned us forever. And therefore we are forgiven. Our debt is paid. Our punishment has been endured by Jesus. And so for us, death is simply sleep. It's sleep. I'm sure I've shared the story of Donald Barnhouse with you before, that great Philadelphia preacher. You'll forgive me for doing so again. It's so helpful, I believe, as he was driving his children to the funeral of his wife and, of course, their mother, who had died um, way too early in her life as a young lady, and he's got all his little children in the back seat of the car, and he's trying to figure out, okay, how can I help my children 
um, kind of walk through their mother's death. And, and it, he drives by, as he's driving, he passes a truck. And the shadow of the truck kind of falls over their car. And then it hits him. He says to the kids, do you see that truck? They say, yeah. He says, do you see its shadow? They say, yeah. He says, what would you rather be hit by? The truck or its shadow? They all say, well, it's shadow. He mentions to his kids, the truck of death hit Jesus. So mommy only has to go through the shadow of death. Our past has been forgiven because Christ has died to pay our debt. We may encounter death, but my friends, for the Christian, it is but a shadow. In fact, we not only believe that we have a forgiven past, but we believe we have a proven future. For it tells us there in verse 14 that not only Jesus died, but that he rose again. All due respect to Hamlet, but he was wrong. Death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns? Well, there has been one who has returned, namely Jesus. He did so publicly, historically, bodily, appearing to 500 people as people went around the countryside testifying to it. And therefore, we can have certain hope. A dead Jesus offers us no hope, just another dead guy in the ground. But he passed through death, and so shall we. For the Bible tells us, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus. So if his death, then, is the purchase of our redemption, the resurrection proves it. It's proof. It's evidence. Therefore, we can be certain that we shall live forever and return with Christ. And so Paul speaks to these morning Thessalonians, and he says, I want you to look back to what you already know. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. As one pastor put it, if you want to know what God thinks about your loved ones who have died, look no further than the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, is this not what Paul says? Look again in verse 14. There's this little phrase there. Uh, He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, here it is, even so, he says. Or we might translate it, in the same way. As God raised Jesus from the dead, so in the same way he will raise your dead ones who are in Christ, who have fallen asleep from the dead. In the same way he will bring them back when Christ returns. Therefore, we don't fear death. Not because it's natural, as the world would say, but because it's defeated. It's defeated. It's it's received a mortal blow. It's still running around causing havoc, but it is on its way down. This is why Paul, unbelievable to me, in 1 Corinthians 15, can mock death. I mean, who mocks death? Death wins every time. And yet Paul comes to death and says, Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Perhaps it's this passage that George Herbert had in mind in his famous dialogue anthem. Christian and death have a conversation. In fact, they they seem to be trash-talking a bit, if you will. Christian says, Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Death responds, Alas, poor mortal, void of story, go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Christian, poor death, And who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death responds, let losers talk, 
Yet thou shalt die, my arms shall crush thee. Christian, with the final word, spare me not and do thy worst. For I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse, for thou shalt be no more. I love it. Come on, death. Right, the more you try to lay me low, the more you raise me high, the more you try to undo me, the more you make me. Because God did not abandon Jesus to the grave, he will not abandon those in Jesus to the grave either. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again. And so we do not grieve in hopeless despair. We grieve with hope. Though not all do. Did you notice the distinction there in verse 13? What does he say? Well, let's consider it one last time as we end together. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Notice that word brothers. About those who are asleep that you might not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, there's two groups there, isn't there? There's the brothers and there's the others. The brothers have hope. The others have none. The brothers, of course, is a reference to the family of God, as we've rehearsed a number of times in our study of 1 Thessalonians. It reminds me of John chapter 6 when Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of that whom he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus says, Everyone who's been given to me, I'll raise them up. The question then, I think, it naturally comes, well, who's given to Jesus? Who's going to be raised? Who has that hope? Well, Jesus will tell us in the very next verse, in John 6 and verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, listen, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Everyone who looks on Jesus, believes in Jesus, will have eternal life. Jesus promised, write it down, put it away, lock it up. He will raise you on the last day. That is the gospel promise from our Lord Jesus. The issue is not whether you are religious or irreligious, for you may be very religious. The issue is not whether you are a good person, a moral person, or a righteous person. For the estimation of all around you, they all may consider you to be all of these things. The issue comes down to the fact there is a God. Have you yielded your life to him in allegiance? Have you received the blood-bought forgiveness that he offers you even now, today, freely because of the work of Jesus? Or to use the language of Jesus, have you looked on the Son and believed? If you remain in unbelief, as the apostle says, if you are not a brother, you're another. There's no middle ground. There's no third group. You're either a brother in Christ or you have no hope. And I know many would protest, say, no, 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 I have hope. And my question simply would be, what do you base that upon? You ever ask people to say that, I have hope. Well, what, where's the foundation of your hope? What do you, where, where lies your faith? And so many people will, will, don't even know. I have a, I have a neighbor who, um, we, we tend to talk about these things. He's a good man. I, I, I very much like him. Um, and uh, he's a, a kind of a Buddhist, um, Christian, something else. I mean, just 
And he's told me, he kind of picks and chooses. I like this from Buddhism, and I like this from Christianity, and I, and I like this thing over here. And so it's like a, it's like a salad bar religion. I mean, just kind of taking a whatever, you know, sprinkle lettuce on top and, and all the rest. And my question for him is, well, how do you know you're picking the right parts? In fact, how do you know you have the authority to even do so? He says, Stephen, I, I never thought of that. And my question to him was, it seems like you're basing not only your life, but your whole eternity on, on your wisdom to identify which, what resonates with your own heart. I, I'm surprised you trust your heart that much. How do you know? Some people say, well, you see, you know what my grandma taught me. That's where my hope is. She says, if I'm a good person, I go to heaven. I believe her. Well, really, does your grandma have the authority to determine eternal life? It's what you, you say, well, it's what my college professor taught me. And, man, he was smart and uh, it was witty and, and it just changed everything. Well, really, does your, your college professor, you really want to base all eternity upon your, your, your college professor? You know what I want to base my eternity on? There was a man, by all accounts, who lived a perfect life, who died upon a cross and three days later rose from the dead. And he has declared, if you believe in me, so shall you rise from the dead. That's my hope. That's the only hope I know. That's the only hope that I can offer you. My encouragement would be to you, as Paul says there in verse 14, that you would believe. That you would believe that Jesus died and that Jesus rose again. And in believing, you would yield your life to him. And therefore, because we believe, those of us who do believe, all of us here, as most of us do, we gather because we believe. Let it just be written on our heart that we know Through Jesus, God will bring back those who have fallen asleep in him. What a glorious hope he has for us. Our Father in heaven, we are unbelievably thankful and full of delight and joy of what Christ has done for us. And then the desire to put hope in our hearts, the desire to to guide and lead us into this truth. We do not, as Paul said, want to be uninformed. We want to know your truth and live in light of your truth. And so let your truth make an impact upon us today, especially those who grieve today, especially those who have uncertain future today, especially those who will walk into grief this afternoon or next week or next month or next year. That we as those who have benefited from the work of Christ will not grieve without hope. You will put that hope deep within us. For we believe in what Christ has done. I pray for those here this morning who do not yet believe. Maybe they're still working it out. Maybe, maybe they're just opposed to everything I've said. We even work in their heart right now that they might ask deep questions. Well, why is it that they believe what they believe? And where does their trust lie? What, what gives them certainty that they're right? That you even show them now the great certainty that the Christian, and I believe the Christian alone has, for our faith is based upon the events that are so well documented that our Lord has risen from the dead. And so we have great, great hope today. Let us walk in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.